Hey friends, it's David Dubinsky here in New York City. I'm the host of a 115 plus episode podcast called Portfolio Career Podcast. On the show, I talk about the importance of picking yourself, developing skills, relationships, experiences, and income streams. The old model of working up the corporate ladder is broken, and this show helps you understand how people are redesigning and creating their own paths forward so you can too. I've done some book review episodes, but I mostly focus on interviews. I've been lucky to interview Seth Godin, where we talked about the benefits of podcasting, the project mindset, and becoming a linchpin. Dory Clark, where we discussed the importance of building an asset like a podcast, why a job is only good until it is taken away from you, and how doing free work leads to paid work. Further, I was also lucky to do an interview episode with your very own Adam Ashton, where we talked about how he started this podcast, books and ideas for people who are looking to build a portfolio career, and the benefits of starting achievable projects like the What You Will Learn podcast. Please check out my interview with Adam Ashton, episode 95. Let's build our portfolio careers together. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of white fragility by Robin D'Angelo, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. It starts with a time where Robin D'Angelo was doing some diversity training. She went to a workplace. The workplace had hired her to lead a bit of a dialogue about race. The room was filled with tension and hostility. She could tell just from the moment she walked in that you know people going to diversity training was not somewhere that they wanted to be. And one bloke there, an older white bloke, of course, was pounding the table and yelling, oh, it's so hard now. White people can't get jobs anymore. And Robin looked around the room and there was 40 people and 38 of them were white. <laughs> and so she was saying, "What? where is this coming from? Where is this anger stemming from? Why, why is this white bloke so angry? And more importantly, why is he so careless about the impacts of his own anger on the workers around them? The white people were nodding along and the, and the two workers of color sitting in the corner who were obviously very shaken by this one bloke who was very outspoken. Yeah, this is no uh, unique case. It happens all the time with, with her as a diversity trainer. Whenever she does the training... Always so many white people get angry or infuriated when they get connected to racism in any way. And she always gets surprised at this. And after all, it's pretty clear that, you know, a lack of perspectives are missing, particularly if you look at that room uh, where there's 38 white dudes and only two people of color. So she says that white people live in a society that is separated and it's unequal when it comes to race. White people are the beneficiaries of this separation and inequality and as a result, we're insulated from the racial stress. It's something that we tend not to come across in our daily lives and it's only when we're put under the microscope of a, of a diversity training that because it's the first time we're doing it for a long time and there's uh, unspoken implications that make people uncomfortable, that's what she calls this white fragility. So this idea of white fragility, it's this feeling that we need a moral defense when this diversity talk rears its head. And the reaction is typically just argumentation, silence or withdrawal from any stress induced in this situation where it comes up. And what this is really doing is it's just a means of racial control by getting pissed off, by getting argumentative or being withdrawn from the conversation. It's a way of just keeping things in this white equilibrium so you're you're maintaining this position of status and getting all the, the benefits from it. So we repel the challenge, we return our racial comfort, and we maintain the dominance of our racial hierarchies. So I think it's pretty typical too when you hear this identity politics stuff to just see the huge flaws that come with it. 
when you're you know talking across the board and you're generalizing about a white male for example it at times can be a very low resolution map of the world because if you're looking around you just point at someone and go that's just a white male and uh, they're reaping all the benefits of that and their privilege you're really not getting down to deep in the detail of that single person you don't know what they've gone through in their whole entire life like for example Asha we walked this morning to get a coffee and there was a white bloke there and he was homeless and he pissed his pants and you know I wouldn't say he's benefiting from the system so Mm. much so you know the idea of identity politics it does have its flaws and weaknesses but at the same time it's very necessary to actually make improvements for different cultures and different societies in the world uh, today and also throughout history. Yeah, to to differentiate that from, I guess, what you might call traditional politics, where there's the you know two major parties in most countries, you're either on one side or the other. Identity politics goes into whether separating people by a particular religion or race or social background or upbringing uh, to form identities. And as you say, there is benefits to that, there are flaws to that. But what Robin D'Angelo says is that all progress in the realm of civil rights has actually only been accomplished through identity politics. If you look at women's suffrage, women were able to get the right to vote by clearly differentiating men and women, uh, similar to the American Disability Act, similar to the recognition of same-sex marriage. All of these uh, major developments came about through using identity politics. Now, if you look at everyone who's, or the vast majority who are sitting in power in the country, she's referring to the US, but I'd say all developed countries around the world, they're all quite similar in terms of identity. They're white, they're male, they're middle and upper class and able-bodied. That's uh, me and you there, yep. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and I think we're the audience she's trying to, teach, uh, to speak to to try and make some good progress. And the decisions that made it at all the tables of power affect the lives of all those people who are not sitting at the table. If you think about it, the people who are in those positions of power that old, middle middle or upper class, straight, white, able-bodied males, they're the ones making the decisions, but the decisions that they make affect everybody who isn't in that category. And it's not the fact that they're willfully, intentionally excluding everybody else. It's merely the fact that they don't really have an understanding of what it is like to be somebody else. So, it's not an intentional exclusion based on deliberate actions. It's more just this uh, implicit bias or this unconscious bias where they're not recognizing or not truly understanding what it means to be somebody else. So, how could they ever possibly make a decision that benefits a different group of people? So, Robin here, she's written this book that is unapologetically rooted in identity politics. She is white and she is addressing a common white dynamic and the book is written for a white audience. So, us two, we got a few slaps reading this and I think there's going to be a few slaps for white people in this episode. And uh, when she's using these terms, she's referring to us as the white collective as a group. Yeah, throughout the book and probably throughout this episode, she uses terms like we and us and and groups, you know, all white people together and it can be jarring, can be uncomfortable to say, hey, hang on, how come you're dragging me into this category as well? Uh, But she says that whilst it is jarring and it is easy to retreat and back away and probably put, put the book down or skip the episode... Uh, that discomfort is she, what she calls a necessary antidote to white fragility. You need to have a bit of a taste of the uncomfortableness. You need to recognize that you probably are, maybe if you're not actively choosing to be in that group, you've probably slipped into that from time to time. So, you've got to recognize these times when things like this happen and be open to learning. And I think even if the group of people who disagree and you know they might be that uncomfortable that they're just sitting in disagreement, it's always a good idea to 
sit through and hear a completely different mm. perspective and different worldview and see what parts uh, you can take onto your worldview or you can at least understand where other people are coming from uh, more fully. Yeah, you don't necessarily need to agree with it, but you do need to understand it as the very first step. And what the, the hope is from the book, she says that the hope is that we may gain insight into why people who identify as white are so difficult in conversations regarding race and or to gain an insight into your own racial responses as you navigate through this roiling racial waters of life. So most of us are very ignorant about issues regarding racism and there's a whole bunch of different reasons that Robin points out. The first one is that we're just ignorant of race and we feel like we belong. As we move through our daily lives, the, the shows you're watching on TV, the best-selling novels you're reading, the movies that you're watching, all the, the heroes throughout history, you look at them and you just think that you're one of them. You don't really notice that they're all white because you're white, you just feel like you belong. Yeah, if you think about your teachers, your classmates, mate, I didn't have any um, any teachers who weren't white by memory. Maybe they I did at university, I think, but definitely not through primary school or high school. And a lot of my friends were were white as well. Yeah, it's just something that you you I guess you don't recognise and you never really realise. Another probably what I think is one of the biggest ones is what the, what she calls is good bad dichotomy. So obviously racism is bad. And if you're a good person, then you're not racist. So by clearly differentiating those two things, you can obviously point to someone who's racist, you know, the KKK who are going out and hunting people down, that's obviously racist, that's bad, and you're nothing like them. You're good, so you're not racist. So that means that any time that you do anything or anyone questions any small element that you do, you obviously quickly defend yourself and quickly object to any hint of racism. You will say the things, you know, I've got lots of black friends. I work in a very diverse environment. My cousin married a black woman. Uh, uh, you know, I grew up in this neighborhood where it was just everyone was white, but that's just because that's where the best schools were. I marched in the Black Lives Matter movement. My auntie adopted a kid from India. Uh, I grew up in Japan, so I know what it's like to be a minority. You whack all these ones out. I grew up in Papua New Guinea, so I was... Mm. I don't know if I'd claim it as strongly as that, but that's that's one thing I that's can claim. That's a long stretch. You got one here. My great-great-grandfather was 116th Indigenous. When someone pulls that out, that's a that's a long stretch. Yeah, exactly. But all these all these justifications that we're whipping out is just to any time we do anything that might be perceived as mildly racist, obviously we think racism, that's very bad, so that's not us. So we're going to use all these justifications to say, no, we're good people. Another reason is we don't see ourselves in racial terms and this is something that a lot of people point to. They look at Martin Luther King's speech when he was going for the civil rights movement. It's a very famous speech we've all heard before. But in it, there was a one line. One day he might be judged by the content of his character and not by the color of his skin. So, you know, a lot of people, they just point to that and say, hey, I'm not racist. I just, I don't see the color of skin. Mm. But in reality, for it's easy for white people to say because we're getting all the benefits from it all. Yeah. She says a, a classic one that she'll come across is, oh, I don't care. I don't care if you're black, white, pink, purple, polka dot. It doesn't matter to me. I don't see color. I've but, said that a few times. It's, <laughs> yeah. on a, it's a line of Remember the Titans. Oh, really? It's when Den, Denzel Washington comes down and he goes, I don't care if you're gr- black, green, blue, blue, or yellow. <laughs> you, can't be, you can't be ripping those out because what that's actually doing is actually diminishing the, the, the differences in race and you're diminishing the experience of a person of color growing up in a white world and the fifth is that you might cringe at anything to do with identity politics so in the west we're really brought up on the story of individualism it's a storyline that creates 
and reinforce the concept that all of us are unique individuals and that our group membership, such as race and class and gender, are really irrelevant to what our opportunities are. And what she's doing in the book, she's breaking the cardinal rule of individualism that she's generalizing about people. And it feels like she's proceeding as if she knows everything about someone just by their group identity and making these gross generalizations about them. So, you know, granted, but as we mentioned at the start, identity politics is a useful tool to get mm. positive change. Another big one is that we have this belief in the meritocracy. We think that it, it doesn't matter how you were born or what you were born into, that the best will ultimately rise to the top. So, this belief in the meritocracy is one way where we think, well, if, if you're good enough, you get to the top. But what we're missing is the systems and the structures that are built up around to favor one group over another. Yes, yeah, a belief that if a certain class of people aren't rising to the top, it's just because they're just not good enough to, to get there. And as you said, it's, it, it does go deeper than that and it might actually be due to the systems in place to benefit white people. So, there's some of the reasons why I guess we're, we're ignorant, why we don't understand these issues and sometimes why we choose not to, to listen and learn because anytime any, of, any hint of racism that we're racist or that we're bad people pops in, uh, we're going to immediately jump on the defensive. We're not going to be open. We're not going to we're not going to listen, and these are some of the major reasons why we're not truly understanding the issues at hand. Let's look at one example, one, one pretty popular example from, from popular culture, uh, movie, when did this come out? Probably eight, eight or nine or ten years ago, The Blind Side. I think it was written by Michael Lewis, wasn't it? The bloke who wrote Moneyball in uh, The Big Short. So The Blind Side got turned into a movie, very popular movie. Sandra Bullock, she actually won an Academy Award. And one one way to view this movie is you've got this this young um, black child who gets taken in. He's not very smart. Uh, he's not very talented. He's a big boy. He's pretty overweight. But then he discovers that he's actually not too bad at, at playing gridiron. He's big. He's strong. He protects the other kids. And he eventually works hard and builds up to the point where he's doing better and better and better and working harder and harder and harder and he's able to by the end of the movie achieve this ultimate goal which is being drafted into the NFL and ultimately becomes this this superstar rising from pretty low beginnings to be able to achieve great success. Yeah, he's portrayed as this gentle giant who lived in this serious poverty. His mother was drug addicted with multiple children with unknown fathers. One of the fathers was this incompetent welfare worker, the other one was some lawyer and the whole neighborhood was full of these gang members and was drug infested and it was just a wild neighborhood. I remember that movie. I had a pretty good feeling in it thinking that's a very nice story about this, this bloke, right? Yeah. If you look at it um, from one perspective, it looks like he's someone who started from pretty much the bottom who hasn't had great circumstances in life. is able to work hard, build their way up and achieve this great success. It's a, it could be a good success story. But after reading this book, you see another perspective. So, the film is told from a white perspective and it is very enthusiastically received by all the audiences, but it really reinforces some of the most dominant ideologies that we have in our society, mainly that white people are the saviors of black people. Yeah, there's this white savior narrative that runs through um, many uh, popular cultural references and you probably don't even recognize it if you're a white person watching this, but we're seeing, we see this, this white woman who saves this young, uh, impoverished child brings her into this well wealthy upper class white family who's you know the, the, the perfect family that goes to the perfect schools this kid goes to school and he's in the, the lowest when it comes to 
intelligence and he, he, he's struggling in class, but that they tested him, they found out that he's really high on things like protective. So she, she doesn't say, hey, this is how you go and learn to play football and teaches him logically the things that you need to do. She actually just says to him, all you need to do is just go out there and protect protect the quarterback, do whatever you can to stop the other people. So she's really dumbing it down to this basic primitive way of understanding how to play football. Yeah, there's a really interesting scene where he's hanging out with gang members in the neighborhood, but the white... Miss Tui, she goes down there and confronts all the gang members and just is much more powerful than all of them and then just takes him back into his life. And in another scene, it's where the white child is negotiating the contract with a very powerful white man. And then just in the background, Michael, the black the black kid, he's just sitting there and kind of just looking at birds or something as if he's too mm. dumb to be able to be negotiating contracts himself. Exactly. So looking at it through that lens is obviously a very different story coming from the the original story of someone who's risen up from poverty to become successful is one story. But looking at it through this lens where it was the, the white family that saved him, the white schools that gave him all the privileges and the, the white people who were really looking after him throughout his whole career is a very different approach. And they say that there's not really any people of color in that movie that have positive um, that have positive roles. They're, they're the gang members, they're the violent people, they're the dumb people, and the only people who are shown positively are all the white people, the white teachers, the white coaches, the white families. So it's, um, it's a, a pretty problematic when you look at it through that lens. Yeah, so that's one non-obvious example where these racial stereotypes, it kind of reinforces the, the narrative and keeps things the way they are without changing anything. There's a bunch of shows, if you think of movies like Hidden Figures, which was about the female scientists in the NASA program, the women of color, they were segregated into different buildings, they weren't respected, they were sent to different bathrooms. That's one movie that was uh, recently made, but looking back at the past. If you look at The Green Book, which is about this famous pianist, uh, a pianist of color who was going around and when he went down south, he wasn't allowed to eat in certain restaurants. Uh, if you look at the TV show I'm watching, Mad Men, it takes us through the 60s, it takes us through women getting the right to vote, it takes us through Martin Luther King getting killed, riots, all this stuff. And it, it all these new movies and new TV shows do it in a way to look back and say, hey, in the 50s and 60s, it was pretty bad, all this segregation, it was very bad. They're doing it in an uncomfortable way where you watch it and you think, man, that was a really bad time, we don't want to do that anymore which I think is a good thing, but I also think on the flip side, it's almost subtly saying, hey, back then it was pretty cooked. At the moment though, things have got a lot better, Yeah, and which I think is like, yeah, you know, not so good to just think, you know, we've improved a lot, but it's still not perfect yet. Yeah, it's definitely still around today, but in a much more consequential and subtle way. I've been watching a show on Amazon Prime recently called Startup and in the show, it's about three people going to start a new company, a new tech company and you've got this Colombian chick and she's this really smart coder. Then you've got Nick, he's this white dude, he's a bit of a weak man but he's very smart and he's the investor and then we've got a black dude named Ronnie and he's very dumb and all he brings to the table is just muscle. He's this hardcore gangster and he just shoots people um, <laughs> when they need. So, you know, it's, again, it just reinforces these stereotypes that all the black people can bring to the table is just muscle, gangster, bullets, mm. and they can't bring anything intelligent. That's in popular culture. And then if you look around and think about wider society more generally, think about your upbringing, thinking about the different racial groups that existed when you were coming up, you know, thinking about things like the music you listen to, the sporting heroes, uh, you know, different characters from different TV shows. If you think about your teachers, if you think about your sports coaches, and 
thinking back and wondering, well, who would the who were these people? Who were the authority figures in your life when you were growing up? So what Robin's saying here is that today we look back at the fifties and the sixties as the time when you had the KKK and you know they were the white supremacists back then, and that's our stereotype of what it means. But today it's still around in the subtle ways. You just got to look at the difference in how non-white people are represented in all the places of power. If you look at, for example, the 10 richest Americans, 100% white. US Congress, 90% white. US governors, 96% white. The president and vice president, it's a pretty small sample size, but 100% white. <laughs> well, one, one from one is, yeah. I think statistically that's, a, that's an interesting way to spin it. Yeah. Yeah, if, you, if you go back uh, five or six years and you could say it was 100% black, but <laughs> I think going for a sample size of one is probably not good stats to use. But people who decided which TV shows we see, so the producers are 93% white, people who decide which news is covered, 85% white, and people who decide which books we read, 90% white, teachers, 82% white. Hmm. And especially the ones in power, whether it be producers, the ones choosing the news, the one who's choosing which books that go and mm. uh, reach the, the bookstore. If it's dominated by one race, then by definition, the other race might be underrepresented in these places and then not have the ability to have the same opportunities that we do. Yeah, exactly. If you think about all of those people in power, you know, politically, then they're going to be making certain political decisions. If you think about all the people that are ultimately driving the culture, they're the ones who are funding the TV shows and the movies and the books and the news, then even it's not that they're consciously ignoring certain stories, but the way that they're doing it, they might just miss stories that are important to different groups of society. There's a story here of Jackie Robinson, and it's a classic example of how whiteness really obscures racism by rendering whites and white privilege and racist institutes uh, invisible. So, Robinson, he's celebrated as the first African-American to break the color line and play Major League Baseball. So, the story we've got in society is that he's racially special, right? Like a black man who broke the color line all by himself and all this power. What a, what a man. But the subtext or another way of looking at it is that Robinson, he is the finally the first person that white people allowed to play this sport. This is a, a very different twist on a very famous story. You used to have the, the colored leagues and the major leagues. One way of looking at it is the fact that, okay, the, the people of color, they weren't as good as the, the white people, but it was this one person who eventually got good enough who was able to break through. Again, that leads to that idea of the meritocracy. But that's not necessarily true. It wasn't that none of these previous black athletes were good enough to play with the whites. It was just the whites actually didn't let them play with them. This was the first time that they were effectively got someone who was so good that they couldn't not let him play with them. And twisting it from being the one black person who was good enough to break through to being the, the one person who was so good that the whites couldn't keep him out any longer and that they finally decided, okay, we might let him play with us is a very different story. So this is where she discusses white privilege and she defines this as a system that privileges whites as a group. If you think about uh, to baseball then, if you're born as a white person, then by definition, you're a much more likely and able with less hurdles to reach Major League Baseball. And these advantages are given to us in all different areas of society and that this whiteness is the foundational premise, right? So the definition of white is really the norm and standard for a human. And a colored person or a black person is just a deviation from this norm. So white people ultimately produce and reinforce these dominant narratives in society. We spin out stories of individualism and we spin out stories of meritocracy 
And having stories like this is saying that if someone isn't successful, we can blame them individually. We can say that they weren't good enough. Using these narratives is what allows us to explain the positions of other racial groups and ultimately the success of our racial group. And in no way do we need to admit that a large portion of our success was actually as the result of the system that we're a part of. So as we wrap it up now, the whole point of the book is us to really just acknowledge racism when conversations like this come up and just don't get defensive because that defensiveness is the thing that's maintaining white solidarity. It's closing off self-reflection. It's trivializing the issue. It's hijacking the conversation. It's protecting a limited worldview. It's taking race off the table and ultimately it's protecting white privilege. Robin says that we're never going to be completely free of racism and we're never going to finish this learning journey. There's always going to be something more that we need to learn about this. She says, importantly, when you feel this white fragility bubbling up, you need to breathe, you need to listen, you need to reflect. If you have any thoughts or somebody accuses you or you notice in yourself some kind of racist idea popping in, maybe you realize that maybe you don't. You can't be jumping on the defensive and immediately thinking that racism equals bad and I'm good so I'm not racist and throwing out some of those common lines about I don't see colour, I've got lots of black friends, all of these defensive things. We need to stay open and we need to keep learning. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you got something out of that episode, please go ahead and give it a share on your platform of choice.